0: Sure. <laughs> the birth was this morning and the birth was this morning. Oh, and now we need to add Torah to it. Oh, we have the whole good day. so nice. Only oh good All right, are we all ready? Lachaim, lachaim, lachaim. I don't think we're live. Oh, there we go. Shalom, valet. Can you hear? And can you see? Something's funny here. Yeah, Facebook and all live. YouTube too? Yeah. Okay, excellent. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Today, wrong turn. You took the right turn to come here to learn about the wrong turn. So today's episode is number 111. I can't even believe it myself. In the Shara Rav We're not even halfway through. And the good news is that uh, you know, we're learning Shabbatotchim, and we're learning how to nurture and develop our trust in Hashem, which will give us the ability to live with certainty. Now, before we start to study, I just want to thank and acknowledge our our generous sponsor, Rachel Pauline Kamen. Thank you for sponsoring. It's sponsored in memory of her beloved mother, and his name, her name, pardon me, was Rivka Bat Ze'ev. May the neshama have an Aliyah. And may we all share good news together. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get right into it. We have not studied this for a couple of weeks. And although at some future point, somebody may roll over from episode number 112 into episode 110 into episode 111 <laughs> and, and have a perfect clarity of where we're coming from, I think it's a good idea for us to give a very quick refresher. But furthermore, I want to respond to some of the feedback that I've got from our listeners and our viewers and the people who have come into the classes about, just to clarify a certain point, and quite fascinatingly, it was when I was studying the original Hasidic discourse known as Hemshach Basel Egani Hashem or the original Basel Egani that the previous Rebbe kind of released in honor of his grandmother's site but turns out to be, it was his, his own name, Hilula, and new So when I learned through the 13th chapter, something kind of like, I said, aha. That's, that's the answer to the question everybody keeps asking. So we learned that when it comes to the decisions we have to make in life, we have to trust. Trust Hashem. <laughs> we ever be certain of anything? I mean, how, how could anybody live with certainty? How could you know for sure you're doing the right thing? Right? So you, see, you have to trust in Hashem. And if you trust in Hashem, you can have certainty. You can have tranquility. Because God is backing you up. And if somebody doesn't know what to do, you make you know, the best choice you can, and then you just trust in Hashem. Because you did your homework. The Torah says, you need to do what you need to do. See, so you did that. You trust in Hashem. And you have no anxiety. But the Shara Betochen, was quick to point out that there are many people, who have it. You'll forgive my French. They have it bass awkward. They, they they mix it up. <laughs> when it comes to spiritual things, they go, "Yes, I'll leave it in God's hands. I'm I'm sure God is going to guide me to a good place, and God is going to give me uh, the ability to make all the right choices, and and God will help me to learn Torah and do mitzvahs." And when it comes to business, you know, that's that's my responsibility. But the Beinu B'chayy says, "No, no, no. It's actually." not the case at all and that would be called misplaced trust because the things that Hashem told us to take responsibility for we should take responsibility for God says don't put the responsibility back on me I put that responsibility on you you know what has to be done so do it don't wait for God to do those things those things you need to do what God needs to do that that's the rest so everything from prosperity to good health to, to uh, successfully navigating the challenges of, of people and relationship, that you can leave in God's hands. But Yiddishkeit, the decisions that are related to Torah and mitzvahs, that in your hands. As our sages famously put it, everything, everything is in heaven's hands, with one exception, chutz. And the exception is Yirat Hirachamaim is kind of a code name for anything that is connected to our servitude to Hashem. Because the foundation is Yira, the foundation is awe. The foundation is reverence. The foundation is respect. The foundation is not love. A person can love somebody else and do things inappropriate. Because ah, I love you anyway. Whatever. But when there's a sense of awe, a sense of of true respect, then we're a lot more careful. So that's yirah Shemayim and as it says, the language in Chassidus that yirah Shemayim is the—it's the, the Shaidish, it's the source, it's the it's the Moker, it's the origin for really all of our Yiddishkeit. And, and in some ways, this is the meaning of the Jewish people's telling Hashem when He asked if they want the Torah, they said, "Nasev and Nishma, we're going to obey." That's respect. Follow what Hashem says, and we want to learn. We want to know. We want to be able to appreciate and understand as well. So, a question that many, many people were bothered with about about this this kind of thesis: are, Aren't there times when we're not sure of what to do in our avodat Hashem, in our service of God? Aren't there like gray issues? And don't we sometimes face extraordinary challenges? And don't we sometimes need? a little bit of aid and intervention from Hashem to help us along with this? Like, is it always like so black and white? Always so simple? I mean, it isn't. It isn't. It's, it's. anybody who's serious about avoidance Hashem knows that it's not a simple, straightforward journey. So what does it mean we don't need betachem? And like, uh, how could I ever be sure that I'm, I'm doing the right thing and so on and so forth? This is the kind of question a lot of people are asking. I think it's a very fair question. So, so this, is, this gave me a little, a little bit of clarity as I was ruminating and thinking about this. The Fridike Rebbe, the previous Rebbe in the Maimer, he talks about the idea that is articulated by our sages as is found both in the Medrash Rabbah as well as in the Zohar. Quote, There isn't a blade of grass that's active, that's, that's something that grows, something that's alive, without having a mazel, which is a spiritual source, on high, a hamakabai. Now, the word maka is translated as who's, who's hitting him, but that doesn't make any sense, of course. So, really, this, this could be like, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a signal that's constantly being broadcast. You know, there, there isn't a, a GPS that can tell you where to go unless it's linked to a satellite. Without a satellite, the GPS is useless and the gps needs to be constantly beaming signals or receiving signals from the satellite and if the satellite stops emitting its signals so that's like macabre it's like continuously sending these waves out if it would stop sending these waves out so if an asteroid hits the satellite the satellite's not going to be working anymore and that might leave a lot of people making wrong turns on route 66 in albuquerque because Route 66 intersects. And that's why Bugs Bunny ended up making the wrong left turn in Albuquerque. <laughs> and a lot of left turns are going to get made. It's just kind of like what our class is called tonight, the wrong turn. So there isn't a blade of grass, nothing that's alive, nothing that's, that's, that's animated, that's not getting a source of inspiration, of life and animation from on high. And the Friedrich Rebbe develops this idea and he kind of uh, articulates it. And he says that in the system that Hashem created, there's an enormous amount of concealment or even obfuscation. To the point that once we receive the animating force, the life force, it's not traceable. We're not able to say, oh, I can trace this back to the origin. I know exactly where this comes from. I'm going to figure this out. I'll know which satellite I'm getting it from. I'll be able to trace everything back to the origin of it all, which is God. Well, actually, that's not the case. It's not the case. So for, let's take like a lame metaphor, when you have these people in the witness protection plan who have to give testimony, but they're afraid that their voice will be recognized and, and they might be imperiled, what they'll do is they have a very, very complex system of changing the voice. So whenever you have a recording, you're not really listening to a voice listening to electric impulses, which is, of course, why listening to the Megillah on, on Zoom is like eating dinner over Zoom. It makes absolutely no sense, and it's halakhically incorrect. Um, I'm very comfortable saying that the Rebbe, said it. the Rebbe said. The Rebbe said, the rabbi said it was correct. We're not electrical engineers and simply didn't understand how amplification and broadcast work. The Rebbe says, I am an electrical engineer, <laughs> and I do understand these things, and, and it doesn't work. The Rebbe said it doesn't work. It doesn't work, and it's meaningless. Just putting that out there, because is coming. So um, the electronic impul- impulses are, there's, are are translated from one impulse to the next impulse, and, and everything comes along the, the nuance and the inflection, but it goes through so many changes, and there are so many possible scenarios or or, or codes or, or or kind of uh, I guess formations of, of 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 different electronic impulses that by the time. The voice gets played, and sometimes we hear voices like this. You know, people don't want people, other people, to know who they are and, and that they're whistleblowers. That even if somebody records that, they'll never be able to trace it back to the origin. It becomes it becomes simply impossible, simply impossible. Well, Michal David is commenting that he wants to thank everybody for attending the class in person. <laughs> but see, that's the difference, Michal David. You can't listen to the radio. I mean to the Megillah on the radio or on Zoom, but but you can you can learn Torah. And you can even learn Torah from a recording. Right? That's 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 how it is, because you're getting the information. But of course, listening to Megillah is a dynamic religious experience. It's different. The point is that Hashem conceals himself. So it's impossible for us to actually, if you will, scientifically unravel God's mystique to the point that we say, aha. Now we have scientific proof. Here is God. You know, the, the God particle, the Hoggs bigson God particle, essentially what it is is they found sequence where they didn't expect it. And things like this can happen randomly, at least not sequentially and not regularly. And they kept finding the sequence and they kept finding the same sequence again and again and again. And at some point, they isolated this, this sequence and said, this, this is not random. S- something is causing things to happen in a certain way and because, obviously, they, the only explanation is that somebody is choreographing the soul, they called, they called it the God particle. I don't remember seeing people banging the doors down coming to show that week because they discovered God. So, ah, see, scientifically proven, <laughs> Bigson, God particle, houses of worship fill up, said the headlines in no newspaper anywhere in the world. Why not? Because people say, yeah, 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 whatever, it's a God particle, you know, it's, it's a euphemism, they, they're calling it God. But Hashem made sure that's going to be the case. Which is, by the way, why what we're doing is very meaningful because it isn't obvious or overt. So what is the prime example of this denial? Who is the biblical, if you will, poster child for God denial? Who's the the villain, the arch-villain? And the answer is Pharaoh. The Pharaoh. Why Pharaoh? Because the Pharaoh the pharaoh publicly claims divinity, right? He doesn't have any washrooms in the facility. He doesn't have any facilities, no washrooms in his palace. Tells everybody that he, he just has intake, but no outtake. And of course, nobody can understand that. It's interesting how the Jews go later on to eat manna for 40 years and have the same phenomenon, except they actually have nourishment melting into them. But that's a subject for a different day. So the pharaoh, the pharaoh says, as, as Ezekiel puts it prophetically, many centuries later, he said, here's, the pharaoh summed up in one sentence. It's my river, and I made it. The river is mine, and I created it. So the pharaoh said, the Nile is the source of sustenance for Egypt, and I am the source of the Nile. I create this. I made this. Now, obviously, pharaoh didn't make the Nile River. That's ridiculous. The Nile River was around for thousands of years before pharaoh came along. And it is true that the river used to rise. The waters used to heave or rise forward. And this happened because Yaakov Avino, Father Jacob, gave a blessing. This is uh, talked about in the Medreshtan town And it's quoted in Rashi, actually, in the Chumash. It, sa- it says that Jacob, Father Jacob blessed the Pharaoh. What was the blessing? That the river should rise to him. And, and that's what happened. So the Pharaoh not only does not acknowledge that the blessing came from a rabbi, from a tzaddik, who had the power to influence the will of God, because tzaddik says and God listens, not only did Pharaoh deny that this was a blessing from a Jew, from a rabbi, from a tzaddik, and enslave the generation, the progeny of Yaakov, he went on to say that I made the river. It's my river. I do me. I do everything I am the center of the universe so it's very easy to poke fun at Pharaoh so, what, an, what an idiot a fool like, how, uh, how delusional could he have been he was like in total denial pun intended of God but the Friedrich Rebbe in this 13th chapter of Basil Ghani goes on to say that don't laugh but look in the mirror instead. Pharaoh is just a caricature. Really, we all kind of do this. He says, and this could be found by people who are involved in commerce or business, and he says it could also be found amongst those who are involved in spiritual pursuit. And he illustrates this. He says, Hagam, although, that you have a Baal who is quite observant. and But he's cheshav. He thinks that Paraphrasing scripture, my power, my wherewithal, my ability created this valor. Although this is a Torah literate and observant Jew, and he knows that the verse goes on to intone, lest you think that you built this, you made this. Instead, remember that it is God who gives you the power, the ability. He says, yeah, he, he knows that. And he knows that our sages says, it's birchas Hashem that is Tasha, that it is the blessing of God that brings affluence or wealth. And he's mentioning, umask Hashem sh'mayim dover Somebody says, how are you? Baruch Hashem fine. Can you meet me tomorrow? Be'ezrat Hashem. Certainly, he's mentioning God all the time. But this is what we're going to call lip service. He's gotten himself into a habit, but he's not thinking about God. Because, because deep down, he takes pride in his success. And he thinks, I succeeded. And he's very proud of himself. He says, Chachmossi Umdali. Ah, I was, I was smart. I knew when to invest, I knew when to pull out. You know, you know, I watch the markets. You know, I get up three o'clock in the morning and I look at the Hang sang and then I I, I, I follow the, the the trajectory and I, I, I look at I look at past performance. You know, I'm I'm really smart, so I I played the markets. How'd you get so rich? Well, let me tell you how I got rich. I had a, I had a methodology. I had a, had a whole very carefully planned program, and I diversified. I had all the things, but then I had this new idea that I put in place, and the guy could explain to you exactly how he got so rich, and and of course. At the same time he's saying Baruch Hashem. <laughs> At the same time he's saying he's talking about God, but he actually believes that he did it. And of course, when everything is great, it's manho'ui, whom is Gah, he is filled with pride and arrogance. And he thinks, Chachmassayamdalay, that it was his own wisdom. So if you believe that God is the source of success, what are you so proud of? And then when things are not good. So there's a time, uh, Suddenly the economy is collapsing and, 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 and the stocks are in a tailspin. Chas has been a muchas and He's terribly despondent. And he feels, feels very low. He feels low and I'm so stupid. I, I did everything wrong. Why did I do all these things? I should have been smarter. I should have been wiser. If only I would have known. Why? What was I thinking? And Friedrich Rebbe says, Shneem enum emes. In his plain spoken truth, the Fridike Rebbe just calls his bluff. Why should I say my bluff? I say his bluff, it's easier. Nobody else talks about himself. We're all perfect, right? Everybody else, all those people out there, those people, it's us. Since it's the blessing of God that brings wealth, so therefore, if you believe it's from God, is and it should be equal. You, 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 should, you should be in really in an equal state of affairs, whether things are good or things are bad. <laughs> That's what, how are things going? Exactly the way God wants them to. How about you? I'm doing my best. Really? Yeah, I'm really doing my best. I'm, I'm following the Shulchan Aruch. I'm doing everything exactly as I should. And how is it going? It's exactly the way God wants it to go. Which means that I don't take credit for my success, nor do I feel despondent at my failures, because they aren't mine, not the success or the failure. Because who is Baruch? It is Almighty God. Nobody likes hearing this, by the way. Especially not when they're talking to themselves. They like hearing about other people. It's cute to poke fun at others. When his things are going really well, he feels so good about himself. He's in a good mood. And he's just go abouts me, he's filled with arrogance and pride. And the Geber says, Don't you believe that it all comes from God? And he says, the problem is, it's only a munapshuta. It's a simple faith. Which simple faith means that it remains unaffective. It doesn't it doesn't change him. It's an idea. It's out there. It's like, like an, it's, out, it's out there in the atmosphere. So what happens is. Although the Friedrich Rebbe doesn't speak about this in this Mimer, like the words of our sages say that the thief is making his heist and he's praying to God to save him. But if you pray to God because you believe that God could save you and presumably he must be sincere because unlike the people who are sitting in the pews of Shul and Davening who aren't thinking about God, the guy who is making the heist, he's really praying. He's actually praying. <laughs> so if he's actually praying, which means that he believes that God could save him, why would you just pray that God should give you parnassa? And, and don't break the law, and don't do things which are against the will of Hashem. And the answer is because he has faith, but it's kind of out there. It's, it's, it, it's not something that changes who he is. The Friedrich doesn't say this, but like maybe I would go out of the limb to say he has a Muna, not Betochen. Because Betochen, it would seem, is how faith becomes internalized and acted upon. And then the Fridlich Rebbe says, the same story repeats itself amongst those who are dedicated to spiritual pursuit, Yoshve Oyel, people who are learning Torah, and they know it's God's Torah. And 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 despite all of this, when they're learning Torah and succeeding at understanding some profound ideas or solving a seemingly intractable problem, coming up with some creative solution to something, they forget about God. And it's like, wow, this is so good. I figured this out. I know how to explain this. I know how to, it's not you. This is, this is a gift from God. If you do understand Torah, it's a gift from God. But the Torah scholar forgets this just as quickly as the business person forgets where his or her success comes from. And, and you start to look at the Torah, well, it's, it's, it's an idea. Well, so so how come this person succeeded in Torah study because he's a genius that's why because he's really smart and worked hard of course you have to work really hard well he worked really hard and he devoted himself and because he worked really hard that's why he figured things out yeah but that's actually the opposite of what Torah is Torah is not a document of intellectual pursuit or or a body of knowledge Torah is divine knowledge it's God's wisdom spiritual pursuit and it's so easy to forget about God. So easy. So this is not about worldly matters or, 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 or spiritual uh, pursuit. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Betochen, betochen that, that, that you, you, you trust in Hashem, that if you're going to try and understand this, that you will succeed, and that your, your understanding is a proper understanding, you have to rely on Hashem. If a, a rabbi is asked a Shiloh, and he prays to Hashem, that Hashem should give him the proper intuition. And he has to believe that if he's put in that position and if he actually studied, not if he uh, didn't study and doesn't know the halacha, say, so, ha, ha God has to give me, uh, magically give me the answers, but that, that if he spent the time, researched the subject, tried his best to come to the answer, put, reached out for all the help he could find, and in the end, the answer, the question's been posed to him, Hashem will help him, and that he will come to the answer. Of course, you need betachin for that. Of course, of course, that requires trust. Rabbeinu B'chaya is not saying that doesn't require trust. Rabbeinu B'chaya is speaking about the things that are clear. What do you do when things are not clear? So, so let's talk about that. What do you do when things are not clear? What happens if somebody has a medical condition? What do they do? They go to a doctor. And do you know for sure that the doctor's advice? will be best for you, you don't know. So what are you going to a doctor for? So, so who should I go to Facebook and ask for medical advice? I mean, a lot of people are doing that these days. They post their medical questions and all the experts chime in. But that's like a silly thing to do. So we should actually go to the experts. If you want to know how to invest, speak to the investment professionals. They, they research this. Why? Because in the world of nature, what we're supposed to do is do our research and make educated decisions, even if they're sometimes educated guesses, but at least they're educated guesses. At least they're based on some kind of rhyme and reason. That's not why they'll be successful. So do you know with certainty that you made the right choice? The answer to all of those questions is no. No, I don't know with certainty. But I have to trust in Hashem. I did my part as well as I can. I trust in Hashem. He's going to make it good. However, when it comes to my Yiddishkeit and I have a decision... A halachic decision, which is clear that this is the right thing to do. And many times in life we know what the right things are, even though we don't like the answer. And we're not happy with the right thing. But the right thing is very clear. This is what's right. It actually is black and white. It's extremely uncomfortable, but it is black and white. What happens then? What happens then is, I don't have to trust in God. There's no room for trust. Then I simply have to do the right thing. Forgive me, leave God out of the equation. Meaning, don't blame God and say, Well, I don't know. So, you know, you know exactly what has to be done. So, do it. Well, how am I going to do it? If God asks you to do it, He gives you the ability, He gives you the strength, He gives you the courage, He gives you the stamina. If He asks you, if God asks you, yes, you can do it. Because, Because if you couldn't, we have to believe that God would never ask you to. So, if He asks you to, you can. And it's actually that simple. So I think I think this is the I, I hope this clears up some of the feedback that that, that I that I've, I've been getting and some of the, the questions about spiritual pursuit versus non spiritual pursuit. I think this I hope this helps frame it a little bit. At any rate, I'll tell you I'll tell you what else this did for me. So so going through this, what also became very clear to me is why Rabbeinu Bechaya continues on to seemingly. It sounds like he's repeating himself again, but he really isn't. That's one of the challenging things about, about the Shara Batochen. It's it sounds it sounds very pedestrian. It sounds like he's repeating himself but but, but he never really is. Chas Fashaw. And he says the word va'oid, and va'uid could be understood as a secondary reason, or va'oid can be understood and as they translate it in the Kihat edition, and I think I think it's the right translation, they translate va'oid as furthermore. Furthermore. Which furthermore could mean something else, but it could mean he's continuing to drive home the point. So it's it's it sounds like it's, the, the logic here is slightly different, but it's not inherently disparate. It it really it really drives home and clarifies everything that we've been saying up until now, and that that brings us to wrong turn, the wrong turn, the wrong turn in Albuquerque. Um, if you're following along in the Quixote edition, where or on page 171. <laughs> now, whilst I like the way the word ve'oid is translated, I don't like the, the uh, introduction, the elucid, elucidative sentence. An additional difference between Torah matters and worldly matters. I, I don't think it's an additional. I, 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 think it's, I think it's furthermore. It's not a second reason. It's continuing to further what we've already studied. Okay, so let's see, let's see, and you 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 can all be the judge. I'm, we're we're going to learn what it says in here, and you'll you'll uh, you'll see why I say that, that it's that it's further. I just want to see if I have any questions. Oh, it's a lot of comments here. One second. Naaman wants to know why the Egyptians didn't figure out that the pharaoh was full of baloney. For the same reason that you and I don't figure out that we're full of baloney, that's why. <laughs> because hindsight is twenty twenty. that's why. All right. So, the oed, ki ha'olam, that regarding, or when it comes to worldly matters, and I want to emphasize that in some way, this refers to spiritual matters also. Meaning, when we don't have the clarity, let's, let's say thereof who gets asked to Shiloh, who needs to find the answer. Although he puts it, he frames it as worldly matters. But, but this is because, he, this is not talking about uh, the, the doctor or the lawyer or, 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 the, or the, the architect or engineer. This is talking about the person who gets the direction and then has to make his own decision. This is talking about the person who asks the Shiloh and then gets an answer. So, in yoni ha'olam, when you get the answer on worldly matters, yesh shetoshuv hasiba ha'meshubachas meguna Meshubachas. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this again. It's, it's, it's a. <laughs> like tough, tough words here. What does it mean? tashuv? So the word tashuv is often translates translates as in return. Right? Like people say tshuva, tshuva is to, La Shuvah is to return. So a lot of things things can come can bounce back come back at you, meaning. You think, person thinks that a particular means it seems to be going in a certain direction. It, seem, it seems to be Meshubach. Now, Meshubach literally means praiseworthy. And I looked in different translations of, of the Sha'ar B'tochen, and it got at least three different translations. Like, <laughs> in the Kiyot edition, they simply translate it as good, good and bad. I mean, that's not what Meshubach and maguna means, but it's just a simplification. And maybe that's a wise simplification, I don't know. In the Art Scroll, they translate uh, translated as positive and negative. A little more sophisticated, it's the same thing. Um, In in the Torah classics, they translate it a little more faithfully, at least in a language level, but I don't know if anything is gained. That which is commendable or reprehensible. Yeah, it's kind of, you know. Something is recommended, it's praised. You're praising this, so yeah, I recommend this, I praise. People say, praise for, praise for this show, praise for this company, praise for this service, praise for praise for the shoemaker, you recommend the shoemaker, that's praise for the shoemaker. Or you say, terrible, awful hotel. I'd never go back to stay there. Terrible caterer, bad restaurant. That's, I'm not recommending. I'm saying, I'm um, the opposite. I'm saying it, it's reprehensible. It's, it's meguna. It's awful. It's terrible. And that's, that's really the language that he's using here. And I don't, I don't know why exactly Rabbi Yehuda ibn Tibbin, he used, you know, possibly dated language, the language of the euphemism, or the, or the, you know, the poetic expression of his day, but we need to figure this out. So I, I don't want to obsess over the verbiage, but but you can't ignore the words. <laughs> like, this was a rishon. Uh, Rabbi Huda ibn Tibbon was also a rishon. He used these words. He's trying to say something. What 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 is he trying to say? Is it just good turns out to be bad and bad turns out to be good? I I, I don't think so. Actually, I actually think it's a little deeper than just good and good and bad and and positive and negative. So. One of the one of the interesting things about the language of of mishubach, sometimes, at least in Talmudic language in Talmudic syntax, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean praiseworthy per se, but it means perfected. Like people would say like a perfect dish. So you have a a, a cook who's able to turn something from a bland or very ordinary kind of, of you know raw materials into a delicacy. A, a, a food which is mishubach. You know, like our our our, our Bubbies, who are very, very wise, much more than most of us realize, didn't just grind or or um, grate carrots because they figured, aha, this is a root vegetable and we have so many of them and we have no other way to feed the people at the table on Rosh Hashanah, so we'll just we're just gonna Somebody's saying meshubach means quality. Well, yes, like better quality. To make something, to turn something to, to, into a quality product. So what, what, what is the idea of tzimis? Right? Well, tzimis is made of carrots. So in Yiddish, the word carrots are medan, which means to increase. And we have from the Talmud that we want to use something which even on a verbiage level sounds like, like increase. But another very interesting thing about carrots are that they're not very sweet. Carrots are borderline bitter. Plain carrots are not, like, super appetizing. But our bubbies understood that if they could, if they would cook the tzimis, or cook the carrots with, with sweet meat, or cook it with, with, with raisins and, and a variety of other things, they could turn it into something that's sweet. Sweet carrots. It's still carrots. It, it doesn't taste like honey. It, it's carrots, but it's honey carrots. It's sweetened carrots. In other words, they took something that was bland or even bitter and turned it into something sweet. And what's, that's what we ask Hashem to do for us on Rosh Hashanah. We ask for hamtakat hadinim. We ask for the sweetening of judgment. So yes, the, things have to be measured out in a certain way. That's the only way things happen, if, 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 if they're measured, if things are arranged, if there's a schedule. But, but a schedule can be harsh and draconian and demanding, or it could be sweet. So we ask Hashem, that the judgments, the things that are meted out and measured out in a very precise way shouldn't be painful. It it should be comfortable. It should be sweet. We have a situation sometimes where we we think that this is something that can really be, this is going to be sweet. This is going to be, oh, Michal Davut's pointing out, I might as well eat chocolate. That's exactly the point. It's not about eating chocolate. (laughs) It's about eating sweetened carrots. So, Meshubach means This is how I'm going to sweeten it. I come up with the right recipe. Now, usually the recipes work. Sometimes recipes can bomb. In life, there are many recipes. So you have a recipe. I have the recipe. I'm going to be able to bring all these moving pieces together, and it's going to produce not a cacophony of sounds. It's going to be a symphony. It's going to be sweetened. It's going to be geschmack, as we say in Yiddish. It's going to be wonderful. And then it turns out terrible. I said, like, well, how did that happen? I said, well, we didn't know how circumstances around us were going to shift and change. We, we I, I thought this was good. But it made sense on paper. The equation seemed right. But in real time, it didn't turn out that way. And I think that's what... And I don't know what Rebbeinu B'chai originally wrote in, in the Hebrew-Arabic that he employed, but I, I have a feeling that he wrote something like this, and that's why Rabbi Yehud ibn Tibben chose these words. I mean, like, like I'd, I'd, I'd ask the translators who go with, you know, simplistic verbiage, like good and bad, do you think that uh, Rabbi Yehud ibn Tibben didn't know about Tov and Ra? What, like, you, you, you think he just didn't know how to say good and bad? So he came up with some, convoluted way to say good and bad. He said, but he meant good and bad. That's not giving him a lot of credit. And, and, and to assume that Rabbi Huda ibn Tibbin would have mistranslated the words of Rabbi B'chaya, that he wrote good and bad in Arabic. And, and Rabbi Huda decided to, you know, kind of make it shine and sparkle and throw in some poetry. That's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> If that's how you're going to study this Shara Batachan, you're, you're, uh, you you're you have no respect for, for for the author or for the translator or, or, or really for the, for the for the sacred text, and th- that's not what inspired the Jewish people for the last thousand years. So there's something he's getting at. Behuda knows how to say positive and negative. He know, he knows how to say these things. He's saying something. It's not he's not saying something simplistic. He's saying something very profound. Good and bad. That's it's much much profounder than good and bad. You try to fine tune something. You had had a very very carefully orchestrated strategy, and it was a perfect storm. Every single detail went sour. And then a person can think that, like everything's going wrong. All these things, everything is wrong. It's all bad. It's like, this is, this is just a, a debacle, a disaster. And then it like somehow turns out to be the most wonderful thing at all. What you thought was an awful set of circumstances turned out to be a beautiful set of circumstances. <laughs> and it wasn't awful at all. You know, So there's this, this ridiculous story. It's, it's a ridiculous story. They, they, they tell about Betachem. The, about but trusting in Hashem. And just, so that this, this rabbi is friends with a king, and the king values him, and the king starts to pressure him, I want you to come with me on a hunting expedition. The rabbi's like, no, 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 we don't hunt, I don't know how to do that. And the king says, no, you're my friend, and I want you to come and you'll see. Anyway, the rabbi has no choice, he's a king, okay, fine, he goes hunting. And he, he doesn't know how to use a firearm, and, and he's getting out of the, the wagon, and they're going into the forest, and the firearm misfires. And, and the rabbi shoots off the king's finger. And the king is furious. He flies into a rage. And he wants to shoot the rabbi, but, you know, doesn't want to be like an outright murder. He locks him up. So that's a life imprisonment, solitary confinement, locks him up. And he's fuming. And he only has three, three fingers. He's maimed. He's a maimed individual. And the story goes on. The rabbi languishes in prison for months on end. And the, and, the, and the king is fuming, continues to fume, and every time he looks at his hand, and he's, even when it heals and there's no more pain, he misses his finger, and he just can never get over his anger. And then on and then another hunting, hunting ex- expedition, he ends up getting captured by this, this, this tribe living in the forest, and it turns out that they're cannibals. Cannibals. And they realize they have some very important people here, and they're looking forward to lunch. And they decide that the king is going to be the first dish. He's going to be the first serving. And somebody, they, they examine him because, you know, you got to examine the, the meat before. He's missing a finger. And they're like, no, 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 we don't eat that. We don't eat that. We don't eat this. It's terrible. He's missing a finger. He's blemished. We don't have blemished meat over here. So that's it. The king goes free. King goes free and now he's like thanking God. He's thanking the rabbi. If my finger wouldn't have been shot, I would be roast beef. So he comes back to home eventually and he's uh, so contrite and he brings the rabbi out of prison and they wash him up and he begs him forgiveness and I say, I'm so sorry for putting you in prison. And the king says, now I understand this betochen thing you've been telling me about. Now it all makes sense to me. But he says to the rabbi, tell me just one thing. There's one thing that bothers me. I understand why I had to lose my finger because it saved my life. But why did you have to languish in prison for the last few months? And the rabbi says, why? Because if I wouldn't have been in prison, I would have been with you on the hunting expedition. And by now I'd be roast beef. So it's a, it's, a, it's a simplistic, ridiculous story, but it's actually, it's actually not that simplistic and it's actually not that ridiculous. It's, it's a caricature of life. A lot of things go wrong. You so say, what did God do that to me for? How could God do that to me? I was doing a mitzvah and I was doing, and, and everything went wrong. How could this be? But then it turns out, oh. So that which I thought was terrible actually became the most wonderful thing in the world. We have a member of our show who tells a story of, of, of his father, who went to the train station because of the I think it was the vision of was coming to town and he was playing, he was playing a violin and then he fell off his violin and, and, he, and he broke his leg and he said how could this happen to me I came to honor a tzaddik and honor Torah and instead of my leg got broken anyway a whole series of mishaps but in the end it turns out that's what saves his life and that's the only reason he ends up alive and that's and that's how he survives the war so. It's a much more sophisticated story, but there are a lot of stories like this in life. And, and, and here's a very important part of, of this lesson. We don't always get to see the ending. We don't always get to see the ending. Sometimes, sometimes we never get to see it. Sometimes it's a generational thing. Sometimes it only gets discovered much later. And having betochen is when things are in play, to be certain, Hashem is going to make it good. Good that's overt and obvious. And when things, chas v'shalom, if it doesn't work out to be, then to be able to move seamlessly from betochen mode into emuna mode, saying, gamzulatova, Tova, this somehow is good too. I just don't know about it yet. just don't know about it yet. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you something that I my own, my own, uh, like, family, like, something that, 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 it kind of bothered me for, for, for a long time. So that, you know, the Friedrich Rebbe had, had Hasidim that remained loyal to Yiddishkeit. And, and so many of them just got arrested and they were murdered. And, like, so why did Hashem do that? They, they made so much sacrifice. And, and I, I had two great grandfathers, both of my father's grandfathers, his maternal grandfather, his namesake, and his father's father, were both arrested in the same week, right after Purim, 1937, and they both succumbed. They both died in the end. They, they were basically murdered by the Soviets. But like the thing is this: eventually, they were both exiled, sent to concentration camp, to Siberia, in concentration camp or Siberian exile, Kazakhstan. But because of this. Both of their families, my grandmother's family from Kharkov, and my grandfather's family from Kiev, both left Kiev and Kharkov. And they ended up in Kazakhstan, in Samarkand, in Tashkent. Had they not gone there, I wouldn't be here today. Because the Jews of Kiev ended up in a ravine called Babi an on Erev Yom Kippur. 33,773 Jews, gone down in three days. And the Jews of Kharkov ended up in a ravine which is not as well known because was only 10,000 Jews or 11,200 Jews that were killed in a place called Yar, which is also a ravine outside of... And there are almost no survivors from Kiev or Kharkov. It's before the trains. It's before the... So yes, both of my great-grandfathers died at very young ages, but it turns out the rest of the family survived as a result. And there's no... Foreseeable way that that would have happened otherwise. So you are going to ask the question: So why did they have to suffer? And why did? I, and why I, I don't have the answer. There's, there's there's always going to be a lot of questions that we'll never have answers for. We have six million question marks that we live with every single day. But the point that that the Beinu is making is a very profound point that this whole thing turned sour. As it was a perfect was a perfect road. To success, it all went sour. This was a perfect recipe for, for disaster. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong until it turned out that it actually wasn't so wrong. In fact, it turned out fantastic. And had all these things not gone wrong, it never would have worked out. So that's, that's, what, that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. That's why, and okay, I can never know what the original Arabic was, but the mashubach and the meguna is along the lines of something that became reprehensible, became like disgusting. This is terrible. How'd you you ruin this recipe? Or something, wow, that's unbelievable. That's fantastic. What'd you do? The cook's like, I don't even know. I, I thought I ruined the recipe. I thought I ruined the broth. I don't know what I did. I don't know how it's so good. And there's a very strong element of that in the kitchen called life. So let's take a look now at, at some of the mafarshim, because I think the mafarshim struggled with this also, and that's why they came up with like like almost different paths. The, I, what I found very interesting was that the we'll start with the Menoia Chalavavas. And the and the Meno'ya Chalavavas explains it like this. He says, what does it mean? Shatoshu of hasiba muguna. What does it mean that the the endeavor? The, the that which the cause which seemed to be fantastic turns out horrible. What does that mean? He says, I'll give you an example. He says, T- working in a tannery, it's one of the, the like most, the filthiest, ugliest kind of things to do. It's like it's really a, a demeaning kind of job. It's a malacha bezuya to, to to skin the carcass of a, of, a, of, a, of a dead donkey. It's 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 eh. It's, 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 it's about the worst thing that could happen. But you know what, he says? What if that gives you an honest way to make a living? How, how bad is that? Yeah, he's a tanner. He's a tanner who makes an honest living. Who's the other guy? Oh, oh that guy? His name is Madoff. Yeah, he's, he's very wealthy. You no, know, he's not a tanner. Of course not. He's just a ganoff. Nobody hates the tanner. Nobody mentions his name with hatred hissing at him when they say his name after they say he was an honest good man person who tried worked provided for his family honest to a fault and this person was terrible so it turns out that yeah he's a tanner what's wrong with that so so what's so, so yeah yeah that's actually what he does yeah, but he could have been a, a huge stockbroker, yeah and a big ganiff i'm not saying stock, every stockbroker is a ganiff i'm just saying like it could be a person ends up doing something which is demeaning. And say, how did I do this demeaning thing? And he say, you know what? This was a, a wonderful way of God saving me from maybe something really awful that would have come my way. <laughs> this, they say, is a true story, although I never actually got a name, that there was a, a, a man who came from Europe and, and he got a job. What kind of job is he going to get? He was a shamus and a shul. What did the shamus and the shul do? Well, the shamus and the shul got up very early in the morning and he, he kind of, clean the shoal and whether he had to actually put wood in the wood-burning oven or however it was, he got it ready for the people who would come to Davan and all the siddurim should be there, everything should be clean, and people would come in the morning to pray and he'd be there. And then, uh, you know, if the rabbi needed help, he was around there and he'd keep the place uh, spick and span and keep, make sure all the books were bound. And that's what he did. It wasn't a great living, but he was in, in a holy environment. And if there was a, well, a wedding, he'd t- come along with the rabbi, He maybe signed the documents. So, so the story goes that there was a, the wealthiest person in the synagogue, and, and he's making a, a wedding, and he needs a witness, a witness, and he says, uh, those days they had many ketubah, which are Hebrew-English, which is a really bad idea, we don't do it anymore, but people used to do it then. Sign your name, and the guy puts an X. He says, what kind of X, what's an X? Sign your name, and the president says, what's wrong with this guy? Could you sign your name? And the man says in Yiddish, I don't know, I don't know how to write English turns to the rabbi says, what kind of idiot is this? We have a shul in our fancy synagogue? Us, well-coiffed Americans, we have a, a shamas, a gabai, who can't sign his name in English? Fire him! It's a an shame and embarrassment for our synagogue. Go, okay, this is the you know, turn of the last century. And the poor rabbi says, but you know, the poor man needs to ma- fire him! Fire him? Okay. The, poor. the president screams to fire the guy. What's he going to do now? So the story goes that, you know, he he, he's helping a friend with a pushcart, and he buried, borrowed a pushcart, and then eventually he made enough money, and he had his own little pushcart. And the story goes that from a pushcart, he had a few pushcarts, and he had people working for him, and then eventually he opened a dry goods store that went so well, he had two, and three, and then four. And he opens up a whole chain of stores. They say it's a true story, and and he's this is now very very well on in his career, and he's signing a, comes to the bank, and he's going to sign a loan. He's guys opening another slew of of of, of franchises. And um, he makes an X. The banker says, Mr. Schwartz, that's how you sign your name? He says, yeah, it was like, I didn't have time to get an education. I was busy making a living always. And he says, wow. He says, you have all this success? And you, and you can't even sign your name in English? I can't even imagine what you would be if you knew how to sign your name in English. And, and, and the man said, it'd be a shamus and a shul. So what he thought was horrible is what a, what a bizuia, what an what a undignified way to make a living, to, to be hawking shmatas in a pushcart, and he ended up being in the textile industry. He said, hey, he's skinning a calf. He said, yeah, he's skinning a calf. He's, he's, he's making a living. He can do very well for himself. So that's, what, that's how the Menech Halavavus uh, understands it. And he says, sometimes, Sometimes that that which is gonna be highly seemingly inappropriate becomes the greatest blessing. And this is like a perfect story. So the Gemara actually says this. This is Gemara, he says, take a look at the Gemara in Mesekh's Pesachim on page one thirteen, the Gemara says that Omar lay said that Hafaich bin Veilta, a person should engage, involve himself in uh, dealing with you know a carcass, an animal carcass. He says, V'al tipah bimili. That's better than being, what they used to call in the old days, a a horse salesman. You know, what what they call in the vernacular, a car salesman. I'm not suggesting that anybody who sells cars is doing anything. Rather, it's like this euphemism. You know, the euphemism of of being, you know, this person. And he says, That it means, skin a donkey, a carcass in the market, and you'll take your uh, payment kahana don't say i'm a i'm a big kahuna. are you kidding me i'm gonna do those low things you know who i am hey this is what you gotta do to make a living make an honest living what's wrong with that what's wrong with that you drive an uber and if i drive an uber what's wrong am i stealing from anybody keeping myself game employed that's it i'm doing what i have to do and providing for my... there's nothing wrong with that it's okay if Hashem wants a person to be wealthy, he's going to be wealthy. If Hashem doesn't want him to be wealthy, he's not going to be wealthy. He can't change that. So the idea that I'm doing an undignified thing or how could I end up in such a horrible situation and actually turns out to be your ticket to extraordinary success. Who, who will know? The answer is only Hashem will know. Only Hashem will know. So this is how the Menachal Levavus puts it. The nether by he he kind of tweaks things a little bit. It takes it a little bit of a different direction, and I want to share with you because these were these were very very great scholars, very wise, intuitive. They they, they knew so much Torah, and they had such a profound understanding that you know we can only dream about. And it's it's worthy of seeing how how did they understand these words? How, how did they kind of appreciate Rabbi Nachman the point that that, that, that he makes? in the backdrop of, of uh, the, their broader knowledge of Torah. So, the, the Nedr Bar like this. He says that the explanation is very simple. When it comes to our involvement in worldly matters, a person cannot make decisions with certainty over just about anything. Because you might choose what seems to be a very lucrative, a very positive, a, 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 a very successful path. And then it turns out to be an utter disaster. And then it's very possible that somebody who found himself by default in a path that, you know, He's like, I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing here. Like, this has no future. This has, this has, this doesn't have a tomorrow. And the way he sees it now, he can't even see how this would ever come to any kind of success. But he just got no choice. He's stuck in this thing, and all of a sudden, it turns out to be the most phenomenal success. And there's so many examples. There are new inventions. Things, things change. Things turn. I know a story of a person who did phenomenally well, and he was, he was, was he had it was very, very specific market share of, of, of cleaning a certain kind of, 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 of curtains and then like overnight, just overnight, everything changed. The whole market changed and that's it. <laughs> there, there was nothing left. They, they literally shut down and went bankrupt. Why? But they had it all figured out. They had everything, with, they cornered the market, they had everything. But then a new merchandise came onto the marketplace and like the marketplace changed. So this can happen all the time. People say, you know, I told my children, go into this and this industry. This is the most lucrative. This is the most productive. And it turns out to be, it it dries up. And people have this education they can't even do anything with. And the other guy went to school to do A, B, and C because that was the only place they let him get into. Yeah, I had that work out. Actually, fantastic. You know, (laughs) um, Steve Jobs couldn't get into school. He actually he, he was like a failure and, and and he was he was in university and he, he he somehow ended up doing some kind of art classes and and he started designing like you remember what the old computer letters used to look like uh, these square weird looking like you know almost like Martian letters like and he came up with this idea that he could tweak this and play around and and all of a sudden like he became the most you know successful man in, uh, in, over the last few decades so He could have been, like, really upset about how everything went wrong for him and he didn't get into the school he wanted and didn't get into the classes that he wanted and everything went wrong for him. But precisely because he was in all the wrong classes and precisely because he ended up where he didn't want to be because he had no choice, that's what led to his success. You know, so everybody loves the the feel-good stories that are visible when you look back. And the challenge, of course is to stay calm and serene and, and trustful to Hashem when you're in the beginning of the story, not at the end. As one wise person once commented, he said, life could be lived so well if we did it backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. <laughs> and we're always like full of regrets. If I would have known A, B, or C, sure, but nobody could have known these things. So what you thought was the wrong turn actually it turned out to be a phenomenal, wonderful thing. Somebody saying, I'm so smart, I made that wrong turn. I'm so, I, I'm so, so what? I'm so dumb, I made, no, you're not smart or dumb. You made a turn based on your information or misinformation or confusion. And if it wasn't a question of, is this right or wrong? You didn't even have a choice. Because Bechira, Chofshis, the freedom of choice that God gives us is only given for a purpose. And the only purpose for creation is to serve Hashem. Ani lo nivreti ela l'shamesh et koni. Our sages put it in Perkei this way. I'm not created. that don't exist save for the purpose of serving God. So I don't get to choose which tie I wear in the morning. I mean, I think I make a choice. But there's things that influence that choice. So it's not really a, a free choice. I get to choose if I should study Torah. You get to choose if you should study Torah. Well, go to Netflix. And your Yetzirah says, go to Netflix. This guy's boring. He drones on. You made the right choice. You're watching the Shara Batochan. The Netflix entertainment will be gone like yesterday's meal. Very quickly. But the information you pick up here is going to be life-changing. This could open your eyes. This can this can clear your mind. This can, can uplift your spirit. This, 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 this is powerful, amazing stuff. But you have to make the right choice. And that you have a choice for. Because it's a mitzvah. Otherwise, life is full of wrong turns. Or so we think. So how should I turn? Should I make the wrong turns? No, that's kind of dumb. You should get the map and triptych as they used to in the old days. You know, today people don't talk about the left turn in Albuquerque because we have (laughs) GPSs. So that kind of, the the next generation doesn't know about that. With other left turns or or right turns or wrong turns? It seems, it seems. You know, where where the Route 66 intersects itself and you don't know which way to go. But the truth is, the truth is that if we live with betachet, we live with certainty that Hashem is taking me exactly where I have to go. As the famous answer that the Rebbe gave to a group of women who were, quote, stranded in Detroit for a Shabbat because there was a snowstorm. And they wrote to the Rebbe, We're stuck in Detroit. And the Rebbe wrote them back, Ayid is nisht stuck. We mean you're stuck? Clearly, Hashem wants you to be there now. <laughs> it's actually that simple. So embrace it. What are you worried about? Leave it in Hashem's hands. You did your part, so that's the case within Yoni Olam. Ah, you know, just to further this along, so, so the the Lechen, He says, you know, they all put it a little bit differently. He says, shahamida Shahoisa ad He says, whatever was causing this to be a wonderful mix fantastic recipe until now all of a sudden something changes so you know the, the, the temperature changes and all of a sudden everything goes off and now it's off it was it was delicious but now it's off. i didn't know the temperature was going to change i didn't know the fridge was going to blow i didn't know there was going to be a blackout of course you didn't but but that's how it turned out Locheni says <laughs> It is impossible. It's impossible for a person to ever predict anything with certainty. Ever. Imagine all the poor people in Turkey, Nebuchadnezzar. Imagine what they were planning just two days ago. Imagine, Imagine so many things that have now been thrown into a catastrophic disaster because the earth shifted a little tectonic plates shifted a little can anybody predict that can anybody know that It was the perfect strategy the perfect plan everything was exactly as it should be except the next morning they declared war how was I supposed to know you weren't you couldn't so nothing really is predictable Except that things are unpredictable. So why do we do the homework? Because Hashem said to. That's really why we do it. Because it's an act of devotion to Hashem. As we learned multiple times in this work. Lastly, I'll share with you the words of the Toiv HaLavanon. Again, only because each one of these commentaries has such a sweet way of, of, of bringing this idea across. He says, the truth is that a person at any given moment makes a choice and lefi hanira based on the observable data it's Taiva, he taiva. And then what he thinks was great. Acharisa darchim avas. You know, the person who fought to get onto that plane and they turned heaven and earth over. And they managed to get onto that plane. But tragically, the plane never arrived. How lucky were they? I guess not so lucky. It seemed great. One of the great tragedies of the, the, the Entebbe rescue was a woman named Eve the Block who had food poisoning. She was taken away to the hospital. And everybody was jealous. Said, she's free. She was never seen again. Who could have predicted that? Who could have known that? It seemed to be a stroke of wonderful grace, a fantastic opportunity. It brought her to her death. The People can find themselves in a terrible situation. This looks bitter and bad, and in the end, this very thing, this brought an extraordinary tra- transformation, a wonderful turnaround, delivering fantastic salvation. Teva says, our sages kind of alluded to this, when they says say, you make a blessing on something bad, like you make a blessing on something good, because what you think is good may not be good, and what you think is bad, may not in the end be bad. This is the Meshubachas, the Muguna paradigm. Ach, however, and here is the beautiful, stunning difference when it comes to our Yiddishkeit. So sweet, his language. The service, doesn't say ha'mitzvah the toil, the effort that a person expends over his or her yiddishkeit. Even if the mitzvah didn't end up getting done, that's not in your hands as we learned. The Avoida is in your hands. The Aveira, the transgression, even if he didn't do the Avera. The Avoid or the Aveira Ainiken. Ki hameguna Mahem lo Ye That which is a beautiful symphony of devotion to Hashem, and that was a garish sounds of, of blasphemy they'll never change may in your name will never change The wrong thing to do will always be the wrong thing to do. A violation of Torah is always going to be the wrong thing. Transgressing Hashem's will is always going to be the wrong thing and doing a mitzvah is always going to be the right thing always it's never going to change. because I don't say if only I would have not for have know what I know I did a mitzvah you never go wrong with doing a mitzvah. If this is what the Shulchan Aruch says, if this is the P'sak Halacha you get, then you can't go wrong. It can't be wrong. You do it to the best of your ability. You can never say, I wish I wouldn't have made that turn. I wish I wouldn't have. That was a big mistake. Never. Not when it comes to Yiddishkeit. Because Yiddishkeit, you're always on what we call an iron bridge. You're always guaranteed. You're always certifiable. It has to be good. Why? Like the Menoyach Chalavavas puts it. He says, ha mitzvah vaha Shove Lak'il. Changes of, of, of environment, the changes of, of pop- popular mores, these changes are meaningless. These changes in no way impact the decision to do what Hashem wants or not. It's always the right thing to do. There's no such thing as a mitzvah is good for today. For today it was a mitzvah. If it's a mitzvah for today, it was never a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah today either. And if it's a mitzvah, it's not a mitzvah for today. It's a mitzvah for eternity. That's the nature of mitzvahs. So there's a huge difference, a huge difference between what we call worldly matters and spiritual matters. If I choose Avedis Hashem, I never go wrong. It's not possible to go wrong. And if it seems that things didn't work out fantastic, I mean, that's, that's in Hashem's house. A Things going to work out. But I didn't do the wrong thing. Think, think about this. Can you say you live without any regrets? Is there a person who has no regrets? And the answer is, we should be able to say that. Because we should be able to say that when things went wrong, it's not mine. It's not for me to regret. I did the right things as, as I was supposed to do Hashem. Wanted things to turn out that way. And we should be able to say, I did what Hashem wants me to do. I followed the Shulchan Aruch. I asked my shaila I did what I was told. I, I have no regrets. How could I have regrets? Well, what's nothing to regret. I regret doing a mitzvah. I regret making an effort to serve Hashem. I did my part. No regrets. Imagine the peace, the inner tranquility of living with no regrets. You actually can. And it's not a delusion. The Marbel Nefesh says, Everything comes from the hands of Hashem. That's with regard to worldly matters. That means the performance of the mitzvah, meaning the effort, the avidah in the mitzvah. It's always good. It doesn't go out of style. Sin is sin is sin, and it's still sin, and it doesn't change. And it never becomes a mitzvah. Regardless of what people say or think. Because we don't answer the people. We answer Hashem. The Paslechem is perplexed by the fact that Rebbeinu B'chayi seems to repeat himself yet again. He says, when it comes to the Avera and the Avoidah, that which is sweet and, 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 and beautiful and Praiseworthy and, and, and commendable, or that which is sour and rotten and bad and off. It's he says, So again, now here we get into the translation. What does it mean? In, in the tradition he says it will never cease nor will it change. Okay. I mean, I think yeyotek comes from the term like uproot. I think that's what it comes from, like, like to, to be removed. And um, the article, article translates it as, it won't change its status or be reversed. That's similar. Where do they say it here? It says it remains so and never changes. So the Paslechum says is like this. What it means is that the right thing, Always remains the right thing. It's, it's, it's always right, and not only it's not not only it's always right. You you're solid. It never turns into something else. It you know so sometimes things you know like they they don't move, but right where it is, it suddenly smells or feels or so, like no no that not, not with good and bad. Good and bad doesn't go out of style and it doesn't go rotten. It's never going to change. So you're safe. And you can't go wrong. Okay, so the in the Kiat edition on the bottom of page 171. He quotes Reb Sajid Goen, and I, I actually have Amunas Va'dayas in my library at home, and I couldn't find it because I, I like to, I'm like a bookie guy. I like to have the safe in front of me. So I, I, it, it's actually the book that Rab Sadiq Goen authored called is written. was also written in Arabic originally, and although it's written after Rebina Baha'i's work. And it was translated into Hebrew. Difficult Hebrew, not not an easy Hebrew to read. But anyways, but this is a very, very, this is probably one of the most famous lines from the Munis Vadeus. He says, Ein umeinu uma, elo They translate it over here. as, Our nature is a nation. The Jewish people are a nation only by virtue of Torah. And he says, since the Torah is eternal, the Jewish people are eternal. Because we are a people by definition because of Torah. Torah makes us a people. We are not a nation because we have a land. Because we didn't have a land for many centuries. We are not a nation because we have kasha and matzobols. Or kibbeh. That doesn't make us into a nation. We are not a nation because we have turbans or streimels. These are all superficial things. We are a nation because we have Torah. Not culturally a nation, not militarily a nation, not diplomatically a nation. We could have all those things. We have had those things. We some we have those things, some of them again. That's not our defining hallmark as a nation. Our defining hallmark as a nation is Torah. And that's why he says the Jewish people will always survive and be here forever. We are an eternal people, because our definition is eternity. And the logic then is that so the Torah is eternal. And therefore, you can't go wrong doing what Hashem wants. You never go wrong living a life of Yiddishkeit. It's impossible. He quotes the Maharal of Prague here. And this is a very interesting. In, in the Pharisees you saw the Maharal of Prague in the, in the 51st chapter. See, he says, he talks about, he says, there are those people. Not amongst our nation, he says, necessarily. You know, naysayers from outside our nation who, who have suggested or thought that the Torah is not eternal, that God changed his mind. For a while, he wanted these mitzvahs, and he said, you know what? These mitzvahs are getting old and rotten. Let's try something else. Maharal says, what do they point to? They say, huh? if the Torah was real, so where's the Beit HaMikdash? Where are your offerings? You don't do those things anymore. Ah, so your Judaism changed. The Torah can't be eternal if you can't keep all of it. After all, can you keep all the mitzvot? Do you know anybody who's perfect keeping all the mitzvot? No, huh? Aha, that's what we told you. That Judaism is a mission impossible. It can never be fulfilled. And therefore, now just love and that's it. And come to our religious service and that everything's going to be fine. And Maral says, this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous because it's based on a faulty premise. The Torah, he says, the Torah is from God. And the Torah that Hashem gave us is not perfect because we fulfilled the Torah. The Torah is perfect because the Torah is perfect. And if a person Whatever would, would ever reach perfection, he or she would reach perfection by performing all the mitzvahs. But because a person didn't reach perfection, does that mean the Torah is imperfect? Or because circumstances don't allow us to have that perfection? It doesn't change the inherent truth of Torah. And he Later on, reasons like this. He says, Nitzchies teira, the eternity of Torah is such, Ki him and Hashem Yisbarach. It's from God. He says, we who receive the Torah have a corporeal, a material form, a terrestrial reality. So the Torah was given to us to try and fulfill. But the Torah isn't, wasn't embodied. We are embodied. The Torah is a godly truth. And a godly truth, he says, How could a Torah get rotten? If it's godly, how could it get old-fashioned? If it's godly, how could it fade? How could it The recipient may be changed. The gift doesn't change. The Torah doesn't change. The Torah comes from a higher place. So how could it change? That we choose to look at things differently doesn't choose the reality that's being seen. It means that we choose to look at it. The Torah is not eternal because we make it eternal. The Torah is eternal because God makes it eternal. And and we are here today, gone tomorrow. The, Rambam, the Maharal emphasizes this, this idea in a, in a number of different ways. He says that the giving of the Torah is Mitzad Hashem Yisbarach. Not Mitzad adam and God is the giver. We are the recipient. Recipients change, the giver doesn't. The Torah doesn't change. So it doesn't get old fashioned. It, it, it can't go bad. No matter what happens in the world. A word of Torah studied is always going to be a good investment. A word of prayer that comes from the heart with intention and fervor and passion is always going to be a moment of eternity you stay, stay with you. An act of loving kindness to somebody can't go bad. It never goes stale. There's one uh, wealthy person who lost most of his money. He said, the only money that's still mine is the tzedakah that I gave. This is the only thing I still have. I lost everything else, he said. That, the tzedakah I gave that's the only thing I do. the only expenditure I have no regrets on was the tzedakah that I gave because everything else is gone but the good deeds that I stimulated through my support he says that's eternal the Rambam in Moru in the second section in the 39th chapter he says this whatever the Torah says he says is eternal so what does it mean when we say the Torah is lo ba Torah is not in the heavens. What does it mean the Torah was given lo nul vanayim? was given to us. So the, the, the Rambam says that doesn't mean that the Torah is imperfect or that we have the right chas v'shalom to change it or disconstrue it from its true meaning. It means that because the Torah was given in a way that we received it, that that, that, that giving is an eternal thing. Hashem gave the Torah to us. So that's the meaning of Torah, shemayim. that's the way Hashem gave us the Torah. It's that way eternally. Now what, is, what does he mean? So his, he gives a number of examples, but if you want to, to, to really zero in to understand like, like what he's saying, there's a, a beautiful comment from Tzvi Chayas, Malatz Chayas It's found in the back of Mesechet Bavim on page 59. So the Gemara over there talks about this, this argument between the sages. And Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkunas, he said that, that something... The halacha should be a certain way, and and the sages discussed it, and they said no, they, they disagreed with him. And he said I'm right. And he went on to stimulate, or or, or catalyze a number of otherworldly phenomena. Walls caving in and, 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 and trees collapsing, and the rabbis on faces he said no, that's not the way we understand the Torah. It's not the way it's. Not. We, we have to rule the Torah by basis we understand. And so the, the heavenly voice comes out and it says, This is the halacha, this is how it's learned in heaven. And they were not phased. They said, That's very nice. But here on earth, this is the way the Torah is learned. And the Gemara says that a heavenly voice said, Which literally reads as, My children, you have been victorious over me. What does that mean? If it's godly Torah, it never changes. And God says one way and we say another way and we're right. Like, what does that even mean? And how, do, how does that kind of square with the words of the Maharal that it's, it's the God's Torah and our Torah, we change, God doesn't change. So, Maharatz Chais explains it in such a, a, a really beautiful way. Forgive me, i got to take my glass off. It's very small letters. He says, the yesoid and the shoyrish, the foundation and the root of our faith in Torah, that the Torah will never change, is because something that's perfect can't get more perfect perfection is like a sum zero game perfection, it is perfect and because it is perfect in every which way it's not possible to find anything like the perfection of Torah anywhere else in the world there is nothing else in the world that has the perfection that Torah has nothing else in the world has Torah's perfection it can't be, nothing else in the world is perfect everything else in the world, as perfect as it may be it's perfect in this situation and it's imperfect in another situation perfection doesn't exist outside of God so he says, This perfection, which comes from God, and it can only be thorough because only God cannot have any omissions and cannot have any changes. As God is eternal, so to the Torah is He says, Take a look in the Moran of Vuchim. We just looked at that Moran of Vuchim together. And he says, This is meaning of Lobashamahimi. So he, he explains this. He says, what, what, what did Ramba mean when he said that? He says that we got in Hashem's Torah an immutable law. An immutable law was that acharei Rabbim Lahatot. We have a doubt and we're not sure what to do, that the Sanhedrin has to discuss this and they have to rule a halacha based on their understanding of Torah, and whatever the majority says, that's going to be the halacha. That's God's. System, so to speak. And the system that God put in place doesn't change. It can't change. And all the maifsim, all the miracles that Abelazar caused, which at Teve, which go in beyond the pale of nature, that doesn't change the basic principle that Torah says, Lo which means Hashem tells us, we should pass on the So they refuse to move away, so to speak, from that basic principle. And he says the meaning of Natshuni is not victory. Natschuni comes from the term, I am eternal through you. Ki ma'aminim Your belief in my eternity, natschunai. nats My eternity. bonai You, that is my eternity. The idea that I gave you the responsibility to rule on the halacha. When a new situation comes up and you have to implement Hashem's law, that doesn't change. That is my eternity, says Hashem. Says a a beautiful story. I mean, a tragic story that's told about a a man who was missing. And and um, you know this happened and just happened in Europe, 18th century Europe. These tragic stories used to happen. And and uh, this guy was gone. This guy was gone, and this poor woman was alone, and, and she wanted to move on with her life. But she didn't have any evidence that her husband had actually nobody has seen a human remains. She went to all the biggest rabbis at the time, and nobody could find a, a cogent halachic formula to to permit this woman to move on. And Rebbe Levi Yitzchak writes a letter to the Alter Rebbe, and he says to the Alter Rebbe, "I know he's dead." He said, Sadiqim, I know he's dead." And the Alter Rebbe wrote him back, "I also know he's dead." But Torah lo ba You don't paskin halachot based on premonitions of holy people who have a deeper consciousness. That's not how Torah works. Torah has to work on basic understanding. There's, there are principles to how a works. There's an amazing uh, manuscript from the Tzemach Tzedek. It's printed in the Hesophis, in the Miluim on, on uh, Erechaim. And it's about making uh, shecheyanu when we read the Megillah in the morning. So the Rambam says you don't make a shecheyanu again, only at night. And the Alter Rebbe pasuk is like that. And the Tzemach Tzedek writes, rabihu, Even though it's my Zadi and my rebbe and my teacher, it's my, it's my rebbe. It says Torah, this is Torah, and I have to rule by my understanding of Torah." And the Tzemach Tzedek says you shouldn't make a shecheyanu. And the tzermach tzedek is two generations after the alta Rebbe. And that's how we paskin. That's what we do. Aye, but it's his Rebbe. That's very nice, but this is a halacha. <laughs> and a halacha has to be paskin like halacha says. So there's principles. That principle is eternal. So people come along and say, of course the Torah is eternal. But I'm talking about like a practical shayla. And I went. And this Rav gave a psak. And who is he? He knows what God wants. He, who could be so, 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 so. So, so arrogant to think he speaks in the name of God. My dear friends, this is how halacha works. There are principles. Hashem gave us these principles. We have to govern ourselves with those principles. And you can never, ever go wrong. Because you did the right thing. Or not. And that, says Rabbi Bahaya, is a certainty that can only be found within the framework of what we call avodat Hashem. Whereas for everything else, we need to have betachev. We need to have, place our trust in God that hopefully this wasn't the wrong turn and what seemed to be the wrong turn will turn into the right turn. But when it comes to halacha, there are no wrong turns and there are no mistakes. And as long as we follow, we have to know that the Torah is eternal and therefore, le'osek, le'yeschalef, le'olem, May Hashem give us the fortitude and the strength. I know I'm not supposed to say Hashem should give us. We're supposed to find it. He gives it to us. (laughs) May we merit to actualize the fortitude that Hashem has already given and continues to give us, the koyach, that we should continue to do the right thing and to follow what Hashem asks us to do because it never goes bad. It never goes sour. And every drop of goodness is eternal. So imagine there's this proverbial reservoir gathering every drop of goodness. And at some point it's going to flow over when that happens the whole world will be bathed in its glow the whole world will be saturated in the knowledge of hashem like the waters that cover the ocean that's what we're waiting for that's what we're praying for and every single time you do a mitzvah and if it comes at great cost and great travail and it takes great effort it's even more meaningful and every time we make a contribution it's never lost it's there forever and together, all these little drops, all these small contributions from the ages will reach the crescendo with the coming of Mashiach ben ubi Amenu Amen. Thanks so much for joining. Have a beautiful night.